0: And we're going to open up to the book of Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35, if you guys don't have a Bible, raise one, raise your hand, we'll get you a Bible. Um, We also will have it up on the screen as well, but Isaiah 35, if you guys want to open up to it, that'd be great. If you guys don't have a Bible, please feel free to keep this. Um, Because this is a family style service, my words this morning will be brief. Uh, We will have some time of reflection and worship right after this. Uh, just to r- uh, remind ourselves of how great God is, to reflect upon him and to respond to him. But um, my words this morning will be very short. But what we're going to do is over the next four weeks, we're going to begin to focus our mind, our attention upon Christ. But we'll look at four specific areas about Christ. We'll look at the concepts of like light from darkness. We'll look at the concept of home from exile. So we'll look at this morning the idea of healing from decay and the idea of comfort in Moments of sorrow. These are all things that Jesus has come to bring. Um, the season, uh, traditionally, of Advent, the Bible actually gives calendars to the Jewish people to follow. Um, and historically, throughout the Christian church, there has been sort of a, an adaptation, a readaptation of that calendar to focus upon various elements and uh, attributes of the life of Jesus throughout the year. One of those ways in which the church historically is focused upon Jesus is a season that's called Advent. And this is the season that we're entering into right now preceding Christmas. It's a way for us, as I already mentioned, to remind ourselves of who Christ is, to focus our worship, to focus our attention, uh, again, as I already alluded to, so that we wouldn't be just simply swept up or caught off guard by way of all sorts of other bombardment of false advertising and Consumerism and whatnot of this, uh, this world in which we live in, that we would focus our minds upon Christ, that we'd really understand what this whole season is all about. So, we'll take a look at the subject, the person of Christ, but this morning we'll take a look at particularly the subject of home from exile. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 35. I'll read a handful of the passages and then uh, make some comments upon it, and then we will respond. I'm going to pick it up at verse 1. We'll basically read through the entire chapter. I won't read every single verse, but I'll kind of read through a selection of them. Uh, We'll take a look at verses 1 and 2 and uh, go on down through there. So chapter 35 of Isaiah verse 1 says this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. They shall see the glory of the Lord The majesty of our God, verse 3 says this, Therefore, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, the Lord your God will come, and he will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams will be in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool of water, and the thirsty ground will become springs of water. And the highway shall be there, and it shall become a, a way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there." And, the, and then the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. This passage of Isaiah has basically been a passage that is oftentimes been referred to as what's called Messianic, meaning it looks forward to a time in which God will fulfill or satisfy promises that he had made long ago. The idea is this is that there are three main elements we'll take a look at here in the passage that really kind of get emphasized. So the three things we'll look at, one is a wilderness, a wilderness is mentioned. Secondly, we'll take a look at a stream because a stream comes up in the middle of this wilderness. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at a way home or a path that is to be brought home. So those three elements kind of come up within this passage. But again, the big idea really is coming home. It's the idea of a homecoming. It's the idea of no longer being strangers, no longer being apart from family, no longer being away from those whom you love or being in a place where you are loved. And the reality is, this is something that all of us long for. All of us as human beings, we want to be home. So my guess would be this past week, on Thursday, most of us had spent some time at home. Right? For many of us, home is not that great. Right? For some of us, home is actually straight up painful. For some of us, home is non existent. And therefore, because it doesn't exist, it's extremely painful. Sometimes during the season of holidays, the holidays become excruciatingly painful because for some of us, home is not there. Or it's very, very far away, and it's a constant reminder of the fact that we wish we had something that is currently not there. And what we see in the Bible is that basically all of humanity is like in this constant homeless state. The Bible describes that as exile, or put it into another metaphor. It's like being in a divorce. It's like being separated from those whom you want to be with or those whom you love. But what the Bible basically describes is a story. In fact, the whole storyline of the Bible is a story. One of which people have been removed from a sense of home, removed from a sense of comfort, a family, but being brought home, being summoned to come home. It's really the story of a homecoming. And what we see here in the book of Isaiah is this promise that God makes to his people Israel that we're basically in this perennial state of alienation or exile or divorce or running far away from home. Another way to think of it, they are by definition, lost. And when you think of it, for the most part, our culture lives within this environment. It's one of the reasons why I think, for example, we have this tendency to like and also at the same time hate social media. So on the one one hand, social media provides this way whereby we can give bits of information out about ourselves and receive bits of information of other people, but at the same time, we also feel that there is this gap there's space, so there's this margin, there's a sense of even though I may know certain bits of information about certain people, I don't really know them. And even though certain people may know certain bits of information about you, they really don't know you. And that lack of knowing someone intimately and that lack of not being known by someone intimately oftentimes leaves us in a place of feeling lost. Always in this place where we're not really certain are we really home? And what the Bible is, is this story that tells us how God goes out of his way to bring people that were once exiled, lost, divorced, back to this place of being called home. And this is the story. This is the story that Isaiah, this prophet, prophesies about how God will do it. So first of all, it begins by describing this scene in the wilderness. So next slide. I'll show some pictures here. Is there any way that we can turn off those blue lights just a pinch? It would be awesome. Thank you. Um, but the idea of the wilderness that gets brought up here is you see elements of dry land, desert, death. So oftentimes when we think of the idea of wilderness, depending upon where you live or how you think of it, we might think of wilderness as being like this nice, lush area. But for the Jewish people, the idea of wilderness was sort of this in-between space from Egypt into the region of Israel. And it was a space that, for the most part, was just non-existent, devoid of any form of life. It was a place that had all sorts of uh, elements about it that were just rugged and dangerous and horrifying and scary. You put your head down to go to sleep at night. You're not really sure if you're going to be stung by a scorpion or a rattlesnake or something or be attacked by some sort of vicious beast. Um, And at the end of the day, the idea of being in the wilderness was... This place where there was no way in which you could actually raise crop or g- crops or grow vegetables or fruit. Because there's nothing alive out in the wilderness. And what God is basically saying is that now you guys are out there in the wilderness, my people. It's like you, your existence is out there far away from anything that is uh, life-giving. And the idea that he goes on to describe here is sort of a parallel... Um, In terms of a metaphor, he describes people that have weak hands, feeble knees. So think of knees that are knocking because they're desperately afraid. What are things that you are afraid of in your life? It's the depiction of being in a wilderness. It's the depiction of being in a life in which you have blind eyes, deaf ears, sickness, death, disease. The idea of... You want your life to have some element of ease, but instead of ease, you have disease. ease In other words, the idea is that you are unsettled. Your life is one of being a vagabond or a wanderer. And this is what God describes that Israel is like. This is really, at the end of the day, what all humanity is like. We are wanderers in this world. We feel the sense of lostness because we feel the sense of feeble knees, of fear, things that scare us, things that alarm us, things that we find ourselves that no matter where we're at, we're not really at a place that we would call home. So what we see, first of all, the idea of the wilderness. The second thing that we see next to the wilderness is this concept of a stream that God says, I'm going to bring a stream into this wilderness. He goes on to describe this, um, that there's going to be a stream in verse six. He says, then shall the lame Man, leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. The waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So if you can imagine living in a place that's nothing but barren, nothing but death, nothing but scary elements all around you, and all of a sudden, a stream breaks through. Now, this picture I have up here doesn't really look much like a stream. I think it's more of like a lake, but you kind of get the idea, That where there's a body of water, there is the potential for bringing life. And this is what God does. He makes his promise to these people of Israel that lived in this dry, barren, deathly type of existence. He says, I'm going to bring something to you that will bring life. It will be sweeping full of life. It will bring you from a place of exile to a place where you would call home. It will bring you from a place where you have disease to being made whole. It will bring those that have feeble knees that are full of fear to a place of shalom or peace. It will bring those who have blind eyes to being able to see, deaf ears to being able to hear. People that were once lame who literally couldn't walk, they will begin to leap like deer to the wilderness. This is the image that God is painting for the people of Israel. So the reality is, again, there's some element where we hear this and we're like, ah, oh, yes. I I want that. I need that. I wish this was my existence. I wish this was something in which I could have. And this is what God makes the promise, that this is one day what will end up happening. So we see, first of all, the wilderness, the stream, and then finally, thirdly, we see this concept of the way home. Verse 8 describes a highway. Shall be there. Take a look at the passage again. It says a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over. And it shall belong to those who walk in the way. And even if they are fools they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there. Nor any ravenous beast will come up. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away and what he describes is that in the middle of this wilderness will be the stream of water that will bring forth healing gushing forth with healing but what will be brought forth as a result of that or the way the reason why this can happen is because there's a pathway there's a way that's described in the middle of this wilderness so this is what we see here The next slide, to take a look at this, or to think about this, the way home. Ironically, what the Bible describes throughout the story of the Old Testament leading on into the New Testament, so we get into the passages of the beginning of what we call the Gospels, the story, the account of Jesus' life. We see these pictures that are described within a storyline that God enters into this world in a manger, Not coming on a white horse, not crushing his enemies, but coming in the most profound, humble way. And what the Bible describes is that this is actually the path. This is the way home. This is the highway that's made in the wilderness. So what we see is that God enters into this world. This is the story of the Bible. It's not so much that we are on this quest somehow trying to find our way home, but the reality is that if that is the case... While we were trying to find our way home, we got extremely even more lost, more complex, more entangled, more ensnared by sin and brokenness and rebellion and cynicism and jadedness. And in the midst of that quest of trying to find home, we would have died within our own sin and suffering. But the story of the Bible is not about us trying to find our way home, but rather it's about God bringing home to us. It's about God coming to us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our rebellion, in doing something for us that we could never even have done for ourselves. Next slide. As I was thinking about this, I had this idea that the reality is that Jesus was actually homeless for 33 years of his life. So if you think of it this way, the God that the Bible portrays for us is a God that does not run from our brokenness, our disease, our blindness, our deafness, our sin, our rebellion, but rather he's a God that runs into our brokenness and pain and hardship, not to bring crushing, but ultimately to put an end or a stop to our lostness in our wandering and our exile in order to bring us home. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what we celebrate. It's not just simply a Uh, a sympathetic looking back of a little baby in a manger. It may entail that to some degree, but the real big idea of Christmas is that we have a God that has actually brought home to us. Home not by way of a place, but home by way of a person. God comes to us in the most humble, unique, loving, kind, vulnerable types of ways through suffering. What we have with Jesus there's a picture of a God that would actually prefer within that season to be homeless for a period of time so that he could rescue us who are genuinely homeless and bring us back to a place of home. This is the God that we have. That we have a God that would be willing to actually endure brokenness, endure the pain and the sufferings of wilderness disease, sickness, pain, suffering, betrayal, all of these things, so that we who live in the midst of those things, that are in a lot of ways defined by those things, or rattled by those things, or shaken by those things, can actually be given a pathway to be brought home. This is the story that God announces through Isaiah and ultimately portrays to us here. There's this great passage in one of the songs that many of us, I'm sure, are familiar with is "Joy to the World." It goes something like this: "No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground." He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Question is: How far? How broad? How wide? How deep has the curse of this world and sin and brokenness gone? It's gone all throughout. It's ubiquitous in this world. It's Ubiquitous in our lives. It's everywhere. We can't escape it. We can't get away from it. It is by definition what leaves us as homeless wanderers, vagabonds, lost, constantly feeling lost in this world. What God does is he comes to undo that curse. He comes to undo that by not waiting for us to come to him, but by him coming to us. As we enter in this Christmas season... What I want to challenge you to think about and consider and meditate and marvel over, and not just simply meditate in a humble, kind, mellow type of a sense, but be blown away by, shaken by, to the point where, like the prophecy says in Isaiah 35, that they will be so moved by this that they will go out with singing. They will be moved and shaken and transformed by this truth that they will not be able to do anything else but then to help themselves to actually Proclaim the greatness of God. That's what this should do. When we understand that we were lost people, alienated from God, barred from the presence of God because of our own lostness, God comes to us, not us seeking home, but God bringing home to us in the form of his son, Jesus. He becomes homeless so that we who are, by definition, homeless, can be given a place called home. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what I want to invite you over the next few weeks to consider, to meditate, to uh, focus on in terms of the greatness of our God. So we're going to finish. We're going to respond. I'm going to show a little video clip on uh, what's called the Bible Project. And it's just about four minutes. Just listen to it. Hopefully it'll kind of give you a good picture or summary of all this. And then I'm going to pray. And then we'll have the worship team come on up and we'll respond by singing a couple more songs. And then we'll partake of communion Uh, So if you're a family, the way that we'll do this is... ...my encouragement to you would be to uh, gather together with your family... ...have communion in the front, up here, and in the back... Uh, to do it as a family. If you're here together or here not together with a family or somebody, or I mean family, it could be an actual biological family, it could be a group of people as a church family, but do it together. My encouragement would be don't just simply do it alone. If you have no one else to do it with, that's fine. But the idea would be to do it together as a family, as maybe a row, as a community group, as a family together in Christ. As we partake of the bread, we eat the bread, and we remind ourselves that this bread, its attribute is that it's broken. The picture, the idea behind broken bread is that as we eat broken bread, it's symbolic of the fact that it was broken so that we who live broken existences, lives, could actually be put back together and made whole again. That we who were once lost could actually be brought home. We who were once alienated can be found. This is what God does. So let's watch this little video clip, and then um, I'll pray, and then Scott will lead us into a couple more songs of just worship as we respond by singing, praying, partaking of communion. So here we go. There's
1: this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden.
2: and Everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except... There's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God.
1: And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit.
2: And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world.
1: Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean... This thing is a problem.
2: Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today.
1: But there is some hope because right here in the story – God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve.
2: That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy is going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's
1: heel. So it's like a mutual destruction.
2: Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next... Key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there will be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome.
1: The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher.
2: But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give into the snake. They choose evil. They go after money and sex and power and following other gods.
1: Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. And the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out.
2: And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise.
1: So it seems like the whole plan is lost.
2: But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old
1: Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows
2: up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David judah and abraham and he goes around israel announcing that the goodness of god's kingdom is here now and he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them by forgiving them of their sins and evil many people are now believing that this is in fact the
1: promised king
2: but jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself
1: the fatal snake bite wound
2: exactly and so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus
1: has the power over evil and death for himself.
2: And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us, to begin confronting the effects of evil in our life. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all, and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth.
0: It's good, huh? So we're going to respond by singing. Uh, the worship team come on up. But again, listen to these words again as these guys come on up. The joy to the world. Paragraph here says No more that sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's a picture of God bringing home to us. It's a picture of God coming into this world that's filled with brokenness. It's marked by curse and God undoing that. So the question is, what do you do? Like, what do, How do we respond? And the appropriate response would be one of opening ourselves up, saying, God, the curse has impacted. It's affected me. I've been bit by this same poison. I've been struck by the same disease. God, come bring healing to me. Come Bring me home. this is what Christianity offers. A place whereby we're no longer vagabonds, no longer wanderers, no longer lost people, no longer orphans, to put another way, but that we're given a place called home. We invite you to come home into that table, if you would, to partake. We do that by eating, as I mentioned, the bread and drinking the cup and worshiping, lifting up our voices, and singing. So why don't we all stand, and we'll finish with a few songs of worship. Let me pray. And again, like I said, we'll partake of communion if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life. We'll have some people over off by the cross that would love to pray for you. But let's, let me pray, and then we'll respond. So God, thank you for your great love. And we respond right now out of gratitude, just as your word says that Those that are healed will go forth leaping and praising God. Uh, God, our response that's appropriate is one of worship, one of love, one of affection. So, God, we now want to give our hearts and song to you as we sing loudly and sing forth your praises. Let's respond.